glory to you, Lord Christ. Beginning with the first verse of the first chapter. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Continuing with chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please pray with me. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight. For thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Of the Father's love begotten, ere the world began to be, he the Alpha and Omega, he the source, the ending, he. Of the things that are, that have been, and that future years shall see, evermore and evermore. That was the words that accompany the tune of the prelude today, written by a Christian of uh, long ago, his name, Aurelius Clemens Prudentius, a Roman, if you hadn't guessed, writing that hymn to Jesus around 348, just 350 years after Jesus' death. And you might be wondering to yourself, why in the heck are we reading Christmas texts today? 
I'm familiar with this one, really familiar with it, right? You're thinking to yourself. And this goes on Christmas Eve. Well, we're continuing in our series in the Apostles' Creed. And today we're talking about the second person of the Apostles' Creed, Jesus Christ. In fact, today we're going over the section, I believe in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now let me warn you, there is a lot in there, but I'm not going to touch on all of it. Yes, you're relieved. There's a lot of theology wrapped up in this one statement, and you could, in honesty, give sermons on each word of it. But what do we mean when we say, credo, I believe in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord? Today, we start the second section of the tripartite, the second piece of the three statements on the Holy Trinity. And I think that it's always a challenge to us, as we talked about it just a couple weeks ago, we had that reading um, from Matthew 16, 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, referring to Jesus. It's always a challenge for us to see who it is that Jesus is in a world that has many different ideas to him. So we go, we're going through the creed looking at what is our faith, what's the bedrock that we stand upon. And the second part of that is that Jesus Christ is Lord. But which Jesus? Which Jesus? Is it the snarky Jesus in memes on Facebook? Giving the Sermon on the Mount? You've probably seen some of them, right? I know, they're, they're entertaining. Is it that Jesus? Is it the Buddy Christ Jesus of the movie Dogma a few years back? You remember that movie? Buddy Christ, that's this image of Jesus that sits on the dashboard and he's given the big thumbs up. Is it perhaps the blonde, meek, and mild Jesus with the wavery voice that we find in the movies that are made in the 20th century or in some of our art even? Is it Jim Caviezel of the Passion? Is it that Jesus? Who is Jesus? The real Jesus. Today we're looking at Jesus, the person in history. Jesus, the son of God and man. And the Jesus who is our Lord. First of all, we can't skip the obvious. He's a person in history. The reason that I chose the gospel passage for today is that St. Luke gospel anchors Jesus squarely in history. This is not some mythological being that came out of the heavens or washed up on the seashore as other pagan religions say. This is Jesus who came to earth as man at a certain time in a certain place. We read the prologue to Luke's gospel. Have, have anybody, has anybody ever heard that read in church before? To Theophilus? Yeah, some of you, good. We read the prologue to the gospel. Why? Because this is Luke, who is a trained ancient historian and doctor, physical, physician. And Luke is writing to Theophilus. Some scholars think he's a real man. Some think that he's just like the reader that we see sometimes in um, when we read 
modern English things, when someone will write to the reader, Theophilus means God lover in Greek, or lover of God in Greek. And we see Luke saying that he wants to give him certainty in the things that he's been taught. And then we jump to Luke chapter 2. And where is it that Jesus is born? When is it that Jesus is born? Well, look with me at the text. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Well, we know from classical history that Quirinius, actually his full name, get ready for this, Publius Sulpicius Quirinius, is his full name, was a real man. He was actually a friend of Julius Caesar. He was so high up in the good list of Julius, or not Julius, Caesar Augustus, I'm sorry. Julius Caesar is the guy before him. He was so high a friend to Caesar Augustus that he was actually named consul in Rome in 12 BC. And then after that, he was appointed governor of the Roman province of Syria. So not only is this recorded in history, it's recorded in archaeology. We have archaeological findings that prove that this man truly existed. You see, this is a person to whom Jesus, under whom Jesus was born, under, that, under his reign. So Jesus is a historical figure. Yet many people today don't take that seriously, right? You've talked to them. They just kind of lump Jesus in with Hercules or um, with some of the fuzzier Eastern gods, right? He's some mythical creature that dispenses wisdom, maybe like Buddha. And yet the scriptures clearly say, no, Jesus is a historical man born at a time and a place. So why do I state this obvious fact? Because it's something our culture struggles with. And you and I need to be ready to have an answer for that. When someone says to you, oh, you believe in all of that stuff, say, well, wait a minute. All of that stuff, that mythical stuff, this has been recorded in history. Friends, it takes no faith whatsoever, none, zero zilch, to believe that Jesus Christ existed. Now, the creed calls us to put our faith in this Christ, of course. We talked about that last week. But it takes no faith to put Jesus into history. Yeah, and in fact, um, if there was, there was, there's more fragments of scripture, there's more contemporary witnesses of Jesus Christ than Plato, than Julius Caesar himself, than the Iliad or the Odyssey. As far as literature goes, there is nothing that approaches the proof of the Bible. There's actually, I have it written down here somewhere, there's 5,800 manuscripts in Greek of the New Testament. 5,800. The next closest is something like 2,000. And there's three different traditions. The Byzantine tradition, the Alexandrian tradition, the Western tradition, which define Jesus as being a man. 
That's just scripture. Let's go outside of scripture. There's Roman historians that attest to the fact. There's archaeology that attests to the fact. So when we're interacting with the world, we can with certainty say, well, you might, because he's a religion, lump Christianity in with the rest of the religions. But as a matter of fact, Jesus is unlike any of these other people. He's a historical figure. As a trained classical historian, I can tell you, again, that takes no faith. Second, Jesus is God, the Father's Son, our Lord. J.I. Packer in his book on the Creed writes, When the Creed called God maker of heaven and earth, it parted company with Hinduism and Eastern faiths generally. Now, by calling Jesus Christ God's only Son, it parts company with Judaism and Islam and stands quite alone. The claim for Jesus is both the touchstone of the Christianity and the ingredient that makes it unique. As the whole New Testament was written to make and justify the claim, we should not be surprised when we find the creed stating it with fuller detail than anything else. And that's true. This part of the creed is the fullest part of the creed, right? The longest section of it. So we believe that Jesus Christ existed, but here we go. Now we as Christians believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, the second part of a triune God. And we believe this for three reasons. Number one, the Old Testament predicts it. Number two, Jesus claims it and produces miracles to validate his claim. And number three, thousands witnessed it. So in our Old Testament today, in our reading, we read way back in um, Deuteronomy, in verse 18, the prediction that God makes through Moses of this man, Jesus, coming. Did you catch it? I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among your, their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Moses uses a very interesting phrase here. He says that he will put his word into him. That should make bells go off in your mind, right? Who is the word in scripture? The second person of the Trinity, Jesus. The word of God, once again, made flesh and dwelling among us from John 1. And so here we see the Old Testament predicting it. Jesus speaks the words of God also, right? We have to listen to what he says because of who he is. Jesus was born a real man in history, but also the Son of God. We know this as the doctrine of the incarnation. The doctrine of the incarnation. What's incarnation mean? Latin. Any Latin scholars? In a body, yeah. Come into being. Yeah, it's actually incarnatio. It's from the same root in Latin that we get carnal, right? And it literally means enfleshment. The enfleshment of God. So when the word of God, predicted in the Old Testament, came to earth in Bethlehem under Quirinius as a man, he came as fully God as well. Incarnatio, God incarnate. 
St. Um, Athanasius writes in his treatise on this a wonderful analogy. He says, you know how it is when some great king enters a large city and dwells in one of its houses. Because of his dwelling in that single house, the whole city is honored, and enemies and robbers cease to molest it. Even so, it is with the king of all, that is Jesus. He has come into our country and dwelt in one body amidst the many. And in consequence, the designs of the enemy against mankind have been foiled, and the corruption of death, which formerly held them in power, has simply ceased to be. For the human race would have perished utterly had not the Lord and Savior of all, the Son of God, come among us to put an end to death. So do you see the analogy? He says, just as a, as a great king comes into a city and gives it dignity, just as a great king comes into a city and restores it and puts forth law and puts forth life, so it is with the incarnation of our Lord Jesus. You know, we always jump right to the cross. But there's something that happens before the cross that's as important, just as important. It's the fact that God became man and dwelt among us. Jesus redeems the human race when he becomes the person there at Bethlehem. The human race is exalted just as the city that the king enters into is exalted. Now, has that been fully realized? No, because you look around you and you look at yourself and you say, no, not quite. But the potential has been given back, right? And so in the incarnation, we have this mystery of God becoming man, something that no other religion claims. In Mark 2, what's the first miracle that Jesus does? He forgives the paralytic's sins. Do you recall the story? The paralytic is brought there by his friends, and Jesus forgives his sins, and people say, who is this that can forgive sins? And Jesus says to them, so that you may know that I have the authority to forgive sins, I say to this man, rise up and walk. That's an image and a picture of the restoration of man. That's an image and a picture of what goes on with the second person of the Trinity. The fact that Jesus speaks into our darkness, Jesus speaks into our pain, into our sickness, into our disease, into our self-inflicted wounds. He speaks life into those things. He heals those things. He forgives those things. And he restores those things. How do we know that Jesus is God? Because that's another question we run into out there, right? How do we know that Jesus is God? Well, first of all, he says so. John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Second of all, it's shown in the scriptures. Who else can forgive sins? Who else has the authority to forgive sins? But God. Third of all, he proves it by doing many miracles, raising people from the dead, healing, bringing people out of sickness, bringing people out of Madness. So you see, Jesus is the Son of God, but that doesn't quite make him Lord, does it? Or does it? If Jesus is the Son of God, follow the logic, then do we owe him all homage and honor? The answer is yes. I get a kick when I see signs on the side of the road or things that say, 
Make Jesus your Lord. You ever run into those? Make Jesus your Lord. That's the equivalent of saying, make the sun your star. Or make earth your home. Jesus is Lord, whether you believe it or not. You don't make him Lord, right? He's your Lord. Because if he's the second person of the Trinity, then he is Lord. Now, the choice that we have is can we join in and voluntarily and lovingly acknowledge him as Lord or not? We can, have, we can make that choice. Philippians 2.10 says that one day everyone will be shown this fact that he is Lord. It tells us that one day every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But you and I have the choice to lovingly bow down because of what he's done for us. We have the choice to acknowledge his lordship. What's it mean that he's Lord, right? Because here's another thing that even Christians struggle with. That's a word that we don't talk about. It means that he's kurios, is the Greek word, Lord and master, a person to whom another person belongs. Another synonym for Lord is owner. Owner. So, just as an exercise, think about it that way in your mind. Jesus Christ is my owner. Jesus Christ is my master. Not in the sense of a cruel master or a cruel owner, but as a sense of someone that's bought you, in a sense of someone that's taken you under his mentorship and out of your mess and into his loving order. You see, we have that privilege of declaring him our Lord. After the resurrection, we can exclaim, uh, uh, St. Thomas, the doubter, exclaims when he sees Jesus, my Lord and my God, in John 20. And you and I can do the same thing. You see, Christianity is not like other religions. It can't be lumped together with them. Why is Jesus our Lord? Why isn't Jesus like Muhammad? Why isn't Jesus like Buddha? Why isn't Jesus like Confucius? Those men are long dead. They can't talk to you. They can't help you. They can do nothing for you. But we believe in a Lord who is alive. We believe in a Lord who's dynamic. We believe in someone that we can have a personal relationship with. Because as Hebrews 13 tells us, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as, as we see in the creed here, the core of Christianity is a person. Actually, it's three persons. But we're talking about Jesus as a person. Christianity is not an ism. It's not a set of beliefs or a set of ethics. It's not just scholasticism. It's not just knowing things. It's trusting in somebody who is Lord. So I ask you today, have you put Jesus in the category of other isms? Have you put your Christianity in the category of just things that I do? Or do you have a dynamic relationship with a living person? St. Peter, writing to the church in his first epistle, calls us 
to action, doesn't he? And for my final point, look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1. What does Peter say? Chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, Christian, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what's that mean? Well, first of all, do you remember how we said we fully put our trust in the Father? Here Peter's saying, you do the same in the Son, in Jesus. You fully put your trust, you fully, fully put your care, you fully put all of yourselves into Jesus Christ. Verse 14, secondly, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter doesn't give us the option of just saying, yeah, Jesus is Lord, I'll go and do what I want. He says, no, as the Christian, we say, credo, I believe, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And I'm not going to dabble with it. I'm going to put my full trust in it. Why does he want us to be holy? Because he desires to see us set apart from a world that's perishing, a world that's falling away. Set apart from people that are confused. Not that we aren't sympathetic and compassionate towards them, but if we're to be of any help to a world that's falling away and perishing around us, we can't look like it, friends. We must conform and set our minds and hearts on Jesus Christ as Lord, trusting in what he's done on the cross, which we'll talk about more next week. I believe in Jesus Christ, his son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Amen.